When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatley in New York, and we begin with the latest from Ukraine. An attempt to evacuate people from the embattled city of Mariupol is underway. Over the weekend, more than 100 civilians were ferried to safety from the besieged Avstol steel plant, something sunlight for the first time in weeks or even months. The plant came under fire again on Sunday night, though, according to Ukrainian forces. Meanwhile, two explosions are reported in Russia's Belgorod region overnight, too. This just a few hours after a large fire broke out at a military installation in the area. Russia has accused Ukraine of cross-border attacks on fuel depots and military facilities. And in Kharkiv, Ukrainian officials say three people were killed and injured in Russian shelling Sunday. And the United States stands with its NATO allies in support of Ukraine. That was the message from Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House of Representatives, when she met Polish President Andrzej Duda earlier. Her visit to Warsaw follows an unannounced visit to the Ukrainian capital on Saturday. In Kyiv, she met President Zelensky, telling him, your fight is a fight for everyone. Our commitment is to be there for you until the fight is done. Now, Nick Peyton Walsh is in Zaporizhia, where our evacuees are expected to arrive from the steel plant in Mariupol. He spoke to my colleague, John Berman, earlier. At this stage, we do not have evacuees from the Azovstal plant or from this specific convoy organized by the United Nations and Red Cross arriving here at the reception center where they would come in. You can see areas here that are being used over the past hours to welcome other evacuees from some actually the past days who've got out of Mariupol and been caught waiting in Russian-held territory and slowly move their way here. But all eyes, of course, are on these two separate moves out of Mariupol. I say two separate because we're talking firstly about the Azovstal steel plant, where a ceasefire allowed the first batch of individuals to get out. I have to quote Russian media here for some of the clearest numbers, but their uh, suggestion was that 46 got out in the first 24-hour period, and in fact now we've seen another 80 uh, in the second. The fate of those split, according to the Russian Ministry of Defence, 11 choosing to stay in separatist territory, we'll have to take their word for that, and then 69 headed in this direction towards Zaporozhye. They have not arrived here if we are, in fact, indeed getting a clean readout from the Russian Ministry of Defence. Instead, Ukrainian officials, for their part, uh, did in the last hours suggest that some of the buses, uh, not these here, these will be the buses that eventually move people on from here, most likely, to their next destination. Some uh, of the buses have yet to meet people at meeting points. Let me just move around here and show you a little bit more about what we're seeing here. But this has become, of course, a move of enormous Uh, symbolic significance, not just because uh, of the fate of those civilians caught under that steel plant and inside that besieged city over the past months, but because, of course, uh, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky yesterday said from 8 o'clock they would be coming out and his team would welcome them here. That's where a lot of the welcome would happen in some of these tents, adequate supplies here and what was just weeks ago, 
the outside of, of, a, of a shopping centre. Um, but real, I think, expectations here, certainly building that something may happen in the hours ahead. But I have to be honest with you, John, we haven't at this point heard any clear suggestion that the convoy is moving with evacuees. I'm talking about the larger convoy of civilians coming out of Mariupol, uh, organised by the United Nations. But it's on its way specifically to us here. And so daylight hours are kind of limited and there's a lot that could potentially go wrong here and a lot of confusing messages coming out. But the stakes are incredibly high, not just for those civilians caught there, 100,000 possibly in Mariupol, who will, as they travel, potentially gather more individuals who wish to follow their path out towards Ukrainian-held territory. But also, too, of course, because of the geopolitical machinations that have been involved in making this happen. The visit by UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres to Moscow, uh, the conversation he had with Russian President Vladimir Putin, and the hopes, frankly, around the world that those suffering most in Mariupol, a city, frankly, levelled by Russia's uh, brutal ambitions there, will find a way to get out. It's here where they'll arrive, but as I talk to you now, they haven't started coming from that actual mission of the humanitarian corridor, and there are concerns that we may not necessarily see them until tomorrow. Nick Payton Walsh reporting there earlier. Now, for the Ukrainian soldiers unable to leave the steel plant, the future remains uncertain. Now, while Russia promised humane treatment to anyone surrendering, even producing propaganda to promote that, CNN's Matt Rivers found evidence to the contrary. A warning. His story contains disturbing images and content. Russian propaganda with a clear message to the last remaining defenders of Mariupol. The video says we guarantee that we will save your lives and we will follow international laws to guarantee humane treatment. Such will be the case, says the voiceover, with this man, a captured Ukrainian soldier, Don Zvonik. The 25-year-old member of Ukraine's Territorial Defense Force was captured at the Azovstal Steel Complex, the last remaining pocket of resistance in the city. CNN has geolocated the building behind them to an area just northwest of the plant, a Russian soldier detailing how they'll be treated. As you are captured, he says, we will treat you with honor and with understanding. These videos were published on April 20th. Five days later, Don Zvonik was dead. This picture of his face, hauntingly lifeless, was sent to his mother by officials in Russian-held Donetsk, she told us. We redialed the numbers and were hung up on once we identified as journalists. To confirm who he was, they also sent a picture of his chest with the tattoo on the body clearly matching the one seen on Zvonik when he was still alive in Russian propaganda videos. When, when you first saw that message, what went through your mind? Nothing. I just screamed. There was nothing. No thoughts. We met his mother near where she's staying in Kyiv. She fled Mariupol herself just two weeks ago alongside the rest of her family. Her sister-in-law also reeling from the photo of her nephew. I still have that photograph in front of my eyes. It's constantly in front of my eyes. A morgue in Donetsk confirmed to CNN that Zvonik was dead and that his body was picked up on Sunday. His family says there was a large wound in the back of his head. CNN can't confirm how he died, but we know he died after being taken into custody, either by Russian or Russian-backed separatist forces. Do you think that the Russians killed your son? No. Yes, I'm sure. 
Russia's Ministry of Defense did not return a request for comment about how Zvonik died. For weeks, CNN has heard directly from soldiers inside the steel plant complex who've told us they will not surrender to the Russians for fear of being executed. Within their ranks, Svonik's death only hardened that sentiment. Does what happened to him only reinforce the notion that the soldiers that are there are not going to surrender to the Russians? Matt, don't you think it confirms their fear and uh, actually expectations what Russia did today? This is a, this is a war crime. We asked Svonik's mother, Anna, if she is angry with the Russians. Her answer, honest and gutting. For now, I only feel enormous pain, pain and emptiness. That's it. Matt Rivers, CNN, Kyiv. Okay, let's get more from CNN's Scott McLean, who's in Lviv for us. Scott, I want to focus in on the explosions that have been reported in the Belgorod region across the border over in Russia. The Russians are pointing the finger at the Ukrainians, accusing them of targeting critical infrastructure. What more do we know about what happened here? Hey, Julia. Yeah. So these explosions were reported by the governor of Belgorod, the region in Russia, just across the border earlier this morning. There were two of them, apparently quite loud. This comes or they say, sorry, I should say that um, these explosions didn't cause any casualties. They didn't damage any infrastructure. This is what the Russians are saying. But they come just a day after there were uh, another fire at a military installation on Russian soil in that same region again. And a few days after uh, just last week, there was a fire at a weapons depot in that very same region uh, as well. Now, you, the Ukrainians haven't exactly owned up to these, but at least the one that last week, they might as well have an advisor to the president saying that karma is a cruel thing. The Russian foreign ministry, Julia, has warned in the past. They've warned Kiev, they've warned the West that Russian or strikes on Russian soil will be met with a swift response, and they further warned not to test Moscow's patience on this because they are determined to achieve their goals in what they call a special military operation. But this is part of a larger pattern. It's not just Belgorod. There have been sites all across uh, Russian territory that have been hit with these mysterious fires. And if the Ukrainians are, in fact, behind some or all of them, then clearly they're not heeding that warning, Julia. No, certainly not. Um, Scott, I know something else that you're focusing on very closely, and it's southwest of Odessa and a Russian missile strike for the third time, I believe, on a critical bridge located in that region. I think we've got a map to show our viewers. What can you tell us about that, that bridge and why it's so important both to the Russians and for the Ukrainians to hold? Yeah, well, why it's important for the Russians, we're still trying to figure that out, but it is critical for the Ukrainians to have that bridge because it is the only link between that southwestern corner of Ukraine and the rest of the country. Any other way to get there has to, at least by land, by rail or by road, has to go through Moldova. And so this bridge is that critical link. And this is the third time now that it has been hit. It was hit once. They started to repair it. It was hit again. Surely uh, it's very likely they were trying to repair it again. And now it's been hit a third time. So the Russians seem determined that the Ukrainians will not be able to use that bridge, cutting off that portion of the country from the rest of itself. Obviously, we know that in Ukraine, air travel is not a thing. So any other way to get there would have to be either through Moldova or by boat, potentially, as well. 
It comes not long after a Russian military commander made very clear that the goal of this invasion is not only to take the eastern Donbass part of the country, but also to control the entire southern part of Ukraine along the Black Sea in order to link up with Transnistria, the separatist region of Moldova that has a large Russian-speaking population and also has a contingent of some 1,500 perhaps Russian troops there as well. There have been these mysterious explosions that have taken place in Transnistria in recent days. Uh, the Ukrainians say that they're trying to create tension with those. Uh, this bridge is obviously very close to that territory. So again, it's not clear exactly what the, Russian, um, the Russians are after here, but it is a very critical piece of infrastructure for Ukraine, Julia. Yes, and crucial for port access too. Scott McLean, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Now, EU energy ministers holding emergency talks today amid fears Russia will cut gas supplies to more countries that refuse to pay them in rubles. Ministers showing strong solidarity with Poland and Bulgaria, which both saw their supplies cut last week. The talks come as the EU appears to be moving closer to a phased-in ban on Russian oil. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, enough to confuse our viewers here. So let's be clear what we're talking about. EU energy ministers discussing the cutoff of Bulgaria and Poland and what to do about gas supplies from Russia. But there does apparently seem rumours of movement on oil supplies from Russia and whether or not some kind of phased in oil embargo can be agreed this week. Germany may be on board. What do we know? Yeah, German participation would be crucial as the biggest importer of Russian energy and the biggest economy in Europe. Julia, what we know is that work is underway on a sixth package of sanctions that could, according to an EU spokesperson to me this morning, include sanctions on oil imports. It could also include further individual sanctions. Nothing is off the table, according to the spokesperson. And crucially, as I said, we heard from Germany, the economy minister last week, saying uh, that, that you know a, a phased ban on Russian oil could be, in his words manageable. Part of the reason for that is that work is well and truly underway in Germany to reduce their reliance on Russian oil. They have gone, uh, according to the economy minister, from 35% of their imports coming from Russia before the war to 12% now. So they are well on the way. That is why they think they could manage this. But there are countries who would manage, who would find it much, much harder to manage. The likes of Hungary, which has already said that it could not, it could not even phase out uh, Russian energy. And Slovakia, also a country that's very reliant uh, on Russian oil. There are reports, there's a report from Reuters today that the EU might be considering, according to officials, uh, a potential exemption for those two countries, either an exemption perhaps or, or a slower transition. That would be a way to, to sort of put forward a picture of European unity while at the same time not sort of alienating those countries who say they simply can't do it. So we expect that discussions will move forward on the sixth package of sanctions. But, but at the moment, the focus appears to be, Julia, uh, for this meeting today on, on the Russian actions last week, cutting off the gas to Poland and Bulgaria. Yes. And what might come next? Claire, no doubt we will reconvene on this conversation. Thank you so much for that, Claire Sebastian there. Now, Beijing is doubling down yet again on the zero COVID health policies that have resulted in a marked weakening of its economy. Beijing today announcing another round of mass PCR testing for more than 20 million residents to battle an uptick in COVID cases there. Officials also temporarily shutting down Beijing's Universal Studios during the ongoing Labor Day holiday. All this after a new report showing manufacturing activity in China contracting for a second straight month. Selena Wang is in the Kunming, China, where she's now on, I believe, day 10 of a 21-day quarantine. Selena, 
we will come back to what you're going through as far as that's concerned. But obviously you're facing these restrictions too. What more limits are being placed on people in the Beijing region to try and keep those cases down? Yeah, Julie, what we were seeing in Beijing is authorities, they're cracking down fast and early to try and avoid a citywide lockdown and get away from the chaos and failures of the Shanghai citywide one. So right now, Beijing has only reported about 400 COVID cases since April 22nd, but already they're locking down parts of the cities, barring many people from leaving their homes. They've shut down a lot of entertainment venues like Universal Studios. They've shut down schools, a lot of public areas. And in addition to that, they're doing rounds and rounds of mass testing. This is a city of more than 20 million people. Just last week, they wrapped up three rounds of mass testing. And now this week, they're doing it all over again. On top of that, starting from May 5th, all residents need to show proof of negative PCR, negative COVID test to get into any public place. That's including public transportation. So as we see these ramped up restrictions in the capital, in Shanghai, still many of that city's 25 million residents, they've been locked in their homes for more than a month. So still, people there are growing more angry and more frustrated. But it's not just these big cities, Julia. Across China, at least 27 cities are under some form of lockdown. That's impacting about 180 million people across China. That's more than half of the U.S. population and some of the extreme measures in China are causing outrage. For instance, in this area outside of Beijing, we see people are forced to hand over their keys to community workers so that they can lock them into their homes from the outside. And in the video, you can see that if people refuse, they actually are drilling holes into their walls to lock them in. In, in Shanghai, video has also shown some parts of the city fencing people into their homes. Now, all of these lockdown measures, they are really hurting China's economy. As we saw from that manufacturing data, we saw factory activity contracting for the second straight month, especially given that Shanghai is the country's industrial heart, financial hub. We're seeing all of these lockdowns impact the supply chain, impact factory operations. It's hurting the economy. Absolutely. We were just showing some video of a door that appeared to be locked there with a piece of wire in a very flimsy looking padlock. I have to say in, in other countries that would certainly not stop people leaving their homes. And speaking of that, as I mentioned, you're on day 10 of a, a 21 day quarantine. You did a brilliant report that I suggest people watch. It's all over social media so people can see it of what your experience was even just to get there. Selena, tell us what it's like to eat, how you're getting your meals, how you're managing Well, Julia, thank you for that. I mean, it's probably bizarre for a lot of our viewers in other parts of the world where people are learning to live with COVID, travel is starting to return to normal. Well, here in China, they're still guarded by some of the strictest border controls and the strictest quarantine in the world. So inbound travelers, they've got to go through a lengthy quarantine. So I traveled in from Tokyo into Quinming, which is 1,600 miles from Beijing because that is the only direct flight we could find given how limited flights are. So I'm basically locked into this quarantine room for 21 days. I can only open my door to pick up food. They deliver three meals a day. You can't order any outside food. And they do multiple temperature checks a day, regular COVID tests. Sometimes I even get a COVID test twice a day, in fact. And also, several times a day, every few hours, I hear noises outside of 
people in full hazmat suits, the staff members disinfecting the hallways. Not only can I hear it, but I can smell it, that strong smell of alcohol seeping through the doors. All of this, it probably sounds extreme, but it's part of China's zero COVID policy. Critics say perhaps this is more politics than science, but authorities in China are saying they're sticking to this. In fact, they're even calling these policies China's magic weapon against COVID. Yes, we were looking at pictures of your meals there as well, Selena. I believe, and you said you bought snacks from you from Tokyo to, to supplement your meals. I hope there was some chocolate in there too, because I have to say I would be really struggling. As serious as the story is, I'll be really struggling. I've with been just tearing through my. <laughs> I've been tearing through my dark chocolate reserves. I'm very scared because my rations are running out already, and I'm you, only halfway through. <laughs> I knew you had a secret for looking so good, Selena. Thank you for that. Hang in there, Selena Wang. All right, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Parts of India and Pakistan are suffering intense heat waves that are putting the lives of millions at risk. Record high temperatures in recent weeks have damaged crops, forced schools to close and put pressure on energy supplies. Experts are warning of even more frequent heat waves that could affect over a billion people in both nations. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi is in Germany on the first leg of a three-day visit to Europe. Today he's meeting with Chancellor Olaf Scholz, then it's on to Copenhagen, followed by a summit with leaders of Nordic nations. The trip comes as Prime Minister Modi is facing pressure from the West to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now coming up, rebuilding from the rubble. Russia's invasion has cost Ukraine's economy countless billions and the cost is rising all the time. More on what it will take to rebuild after this. Welcome back. As heavy shelling continues in eastern Ukraine, the Ukrainian government is already thinking about the long road to rebuilding the country. Ukraine's prime minister says during the first six weeks of the war, damage to Ukraine's economy exceeded $500 billion. And according to government estimates, damage in the long run could be $1 trillion or five times Ukraine's GDP last year. A full-scale recovery will cost billions and will need global support. Now, part of that effort is Sergei Sivach. He is the executive director of Ukraine Invest, Ukraine's investment promotion office. Sergei, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. When we are talking about $1 trillion, it is a mind-blowing sum for anyone, never mind how big your, your nation's economy is. How are you framing that in the discussions that you're having with people that could potentially help? It's a very significant amount for Ukraine, mm. but not only for Ukraine, for any country worldwide. Let me give you some figures what happened during these 62 days of unprovoked illegal criminal war aggression against Ukraine. Almost 23,000 kilometers of roads were destroyed. 32 million square meters of real estate. 535 kindergartens. 866 educational facilities. 173 factories in Ukraine were damaged and two ports. And we also have no access to four ports in Ukraine. So you can see that this damage is very significant and this is no longer Ukrainian crisis. This is no longer a regional crisis. It's a global crisis. When we talk about FDIs alone, negative effect on FDIs is around 54 billion US dollars. Bearing in mind that in 2021, total FDI stock 
in Ukraine was 61 billion US dollars. You can imagine how serious this is for uh, Ukraine. And I, as I said, this is a very serious case for the whole world. Wow. I mean, I was writing those numbers down and it's tough to get a grasp of. We'll break it down into where you begin. But I think to your point, when you're talking about 22,000 kilometers of Ukrainian roads damaged and the country's still at war, you need to be rebuilding now. But there's also a battle to fight. Are people willing to provide money for the rebuilding now? Or are they saying, look, we'll give you money, but the war needs to be over or what we invest may end up needing to be done again in a, f- a few weeks or months? I would separate this into two issues. President yeah. Zelensky said that we have to start rebuilding economy and infrastructure, critical infrastructure right now. We cannot right. wait till the end of the war because country needs to operate. There was a high-level meeting in Washington and we have seen uh, significant support from international community, from international organizations and our partner countries. So uh, we expect this uh, support to come to Ukraine soon. But uh, also we will have to talk later about private investment support. And uh, we already, as governments of Ukraine, Investment Attraction and Support Office, we are working on programs for twinning cooperation. It's a very good approach. Uh, it could be used uh, between Ukraine and other states, like, for example, United Kingdom said that they will support rebuilding of Kiev, capital of Ukraine, and Kiev region. Uh, Sweden, Denmark, they are, they are happy to support uh, rebuilding of uh, Mykolaiv. But we can also talk about sectors of economy that can be rebuilt by big multinationals. Um, uh, as you know, Ukraine is very rich in terms of raw materials. We have 20 out of 30 critical raw materials. We are rich in terms of cobalt, lithium, zirconium, graphite, you know, this, all these minerals of the future. So Ukraine will have to be rebuilt as a Ukraine 2.0. We cannot go back to raw materials economy anymore. We need to produce value-added goods. We can become center for uh, production of uh, electric batteries, electric vehicles for the whole Europe, for the whole world, for United States. We will need a lot of machinery to, um, uh, to make sure that our, our agri-sector will be more advanced. And we will need at least $20 billion for agri-processing equipment in order to produce more value-added products in Ukraine. So we have a lot of opportunities. And we're not asking uh, the world just to give us money. We're talking about win-win case here. Because when, when foreign companies, foreign investors will come to Ukraine, they will be able to help us, but also will help them to become stronger in terms of their interaction with global supply chains. Yeah, I mean, interesting. We know a lot about the agricultural production because we've seen the impact in in food prices all around the world. Some flour oil production, I know, is a big one. But actually what caught my attention there was the lithium batteries, the the neon that's required. I mean, that has global implications for the auto industry. So when you're talking about big multinationals, perhaps recognising your importance in their supply chains, be they in the agricultural sector or in the auto sector, have some of them got in contact already and said, look, how can we help? Because to your point, this is an investment. This is not necessarily a gift. There is potential for them, too, to be involved. Absolutely. Uh, I just came back from the uh, Ukrainian border with Poland because we had 
high-level uh, delegation from the United States. I'm talking about businessmen, not state right. delegation. And they're already exploring opportunities. They want to help Ukraine, but they're also interested in a long-term cooperation uh, to uh, develop uh, mutually beneficial uh, cooperation. When we talk about NEON, very important uh, that U.S. audience understands that 90% of NEON grade semiconductors that are used by U.S. automotive industry was produced in Ukraine, in the region of Mariupol. And when we talk about um, sunflower oil, Ukraine is the biggest worldwide exporter of sunflower oil. We export 50% of world sunflower oil market. And only about 9% of what we usually produce is being left in Ukraine. And more than 90% annually exported to the world. And we have seen that not only African, Asian, you know, uh, the, uh, the East countries are affected, but also European countries and United Kingdom, because in United Kingdom, price of sunflower oil went mm. up by 60%. Okay, what can you tell me about Mariupol's production and how long it's going to take to rebuild, even in a situation where it's stabilized? Because, again, we're going back to a, a critical supply for the global auto industry. What can you tell me about supplies, how much time it's going to take to, to rebuild there, assuming we can? Because I think we... We've had these kind of images of Mariupol and the devastation there burned into our minds. Mariupol city is fully destroyed. Mm. Uh, Kharkiv city, uh, the city that is near Russian border, like 30 miles, um, they have more than 1,000 buildings uh, destroyed. But Mariupol city is just uh, demolished. So uh, I would probably say that we need to wait till end of uh, active phase of war operation, then we can assess how long it will take and how much will be needed. Um, it will take a year or two to rebuild quickly, and it, it can take five or ten years or fifteen years if this support, the rebuilding support will not be effective enough or it will not be significant enough. Mariupol port alone is the biggest metal transshipment uh, center from Ukraine. And it was the, big, the, the fifth biggest seaport in Ukraine. So uh, the region is very important, but it is very hard to say now, you know, how long it will take and much will depend on pressure of the world on Russia. They have to stop what they're doing. They have to stop doing criminal activity and this unprovoked, as I said, illegal aggression against Ukraine. Sergi, let's circle back. Final question on critical infrastructure, utilities, electricity, water, the basics for people to be able to live. Have you had private investor interest in perhaps coming in, helping you rebuild, modernize those kind of utilities? Again, there's return potential there for, for a private investor. We already have this request, and actually today we have received a request from a potential U.S. investor who Great. is interested to enter semiconductor business in Ukraine. They already make this uh, assessment and the water supplies and other strategic uh, directions that, is, that are needed for Ukrainian economy. We received many requests 
uh, and we already do meetings in Kyiv. And all of them say same thing. So uh, as soon as the war, this war ends, we will enter Ukraine. We have seen requests from foreign countries. They are saying that they will relocate their facilities from other countries to Ukraine just because they think it's, uh, it will be a right thing to do. And uh, they also they wait when, uh, they, when this will end. So a lot of requests. We are working on that, but we are not just waiting for the end of the war in Ukraine. We are already doing our analytics. We are doing our proposals. So I think there will be a lot of opportunities for impact investors, companies yeah. that will be interested to make profit, but they will be uh, making profit on a, a bit different kind of uh, level. They will have a lesser profit maybe at the beginning, but then after Ukraine will be reintegrated in global supply chain, they will benefit and will be happy to see our international friends making business with, with us on a win-win basis. Right. Now we just pray for peace. Sergi, great to get you on. Thank you so much for all the information and um, a lot of work to be done, but good to see you're already getting cracking on it. Sergi Tsivac, there, the Executive Director Thank of you. Ukraine Invest. Thank day. you, sir. Welcome back. A reminder of our top stories today. Officials say a civilian evacuation from the devastated city of Mariupol is underway, but there are delays in getting the buses to the pickup points. The fate of people still sheltering in the Azovstal steel plant remains uncertain. More than 100 were evacuated on Sunday, but Ukraine says hundreds do remain. The plant came under heavy shelling overnight too, and there is no word whether the next phase of that evacuation can still go ahead. Ukraine's military says Russian forces are pressing forward in an offensive towards the eastern Donetsk region, specifically the town of Slavyansk. As Russia continues with its offense in Ukraine's east, it's also clamping down on dissent at home. Moscow is designating critics of the government foreign agents, imposing severe restrictions on their freedom of speech. Many of them are choosing to leave the country. Among them is Ekaterina Shulman. She's a political scientist and Kremlin critic, even though she served on Vladimir Putin's presidential council for civil society and human rights until he dismissed her in 2019. The Kremlin designated her a foreign agent last month, just after she announced she was leaving Moscow for Berlin for a year. She's a fellow at the Robert Bosch Academy. And Ekaterina joins us now. Great to have you on the show. I've heard you say in, in podcasts that you were expecting to be designated a foreign agent, but perhaps the reality is different. How does it feel now? Uh, this is not something that one expects. Uh, it's not a birthday present or a New Year celebration. And uh, frankly, I don't think the public would be very much interested in my interior emotions. But given the uh, tempo... Uh, of uh, this list being filled with new and new names every Friday uh, and these names all being familiar people and especially when one saw the broadening circle of I would say social strata included into this foreign agents registry. Uh, first it was mostly NGO activists especially those who uh, dealt with uh, election observation uh, then journalists then came uh, academicians teachers uh, uh, even, even uh, one painter and video bloggers and then it became more or less evident that uh, my turn uh, would come one, one Friday or the other. By the way I would like to note that last Friday uh, for some 
some reason went without the usual uh, news from the Ministry of Justice, so new, no new foreign agents. Evidently, they went on their May vacations already. But we uh. will expect them back with more with more news and more expected presence uh, next Friday, I suppose. You know, those that are uh, familiar with your work and your podcasts, um, I know you're punchy, but I think they see you also as a, a voice of calm amid great uncertainty and I've noticed a consistent thread in your comments was that you felt like you needed to be in Moscow to make your point, to, to spread your word and to send the message and to get through to the people that needed to hear you. How does being outside of, of Moscow change that and perhaps how you send your message? And do you still feel like your place is in Moscow and in Russia, if not perhaps this Russia? <sighs> Ah, when I was back in, in my country, I was a rather persistent opponent to uh, immigration. Uh, it has always been my position that while staying in your place and doing your job is physically possible, uh, it's better to uh, use this opportunity while it lasts. And I maybe I can say for myself that I used it while it was possible till maybe the very, very last uh, moment. You know that after February 24th, many people left immediately. Uh, more people left within, within a few weeks. I will not uh, I will not say that it's a particular badge of honor uh, for me to have stayed a few weeks longer than the others. But still, uh, while there was no direct threat of, let's say, frankly, criminal prosecution. Uh, then, of course, uh, we who are public speakers and teachers and scholars, we try to stay where we belong. One can't avoid feeling that a word spoken from outside of the country is fraught with um, much less risk and therefore it's much less valuable. You get freedom of speech, but this, this speech loses its about half of its uh, consequence. But on the other hand, those who stay are more and more forced to be completely silent or to speak of non-political subjects. And I'm a political scientist. You have designated me a Kremlin critic. I don't think my main job was to criticize the Kremlin. Uh, I'm Actually, I study legislative process and parliamentarism. And this is what I taught to my students while I had uh, the opportunity of teaching. This is what I wrote about. And I was very much in the Duma in the Russian parliament during the last, I don't know, 20 years. So I can't say that I'm a radical oppositional figure. And maybe my experience tells something about the transformation that Russian political sphere and public sphere in general has undergone in those very few last weeks. You know, you, you could make the argument, too, that you may be slightly safer somewhere else. But as history, I think, has proved, you're still not perfectly safe being outside of Moscow and, and Russia, even if you're around the world. You know, I think what I'd love to get your take on is the the informational war that's taking place. And, and you said at the beginning of this interview, no one's interested in your emotional response. But actually, I think we are, as, as non-Russians, watching this interested in, in, in Russian people's response to what we're seeing. And, and whether in some ways, and I think it's human nature, it's perhaps easier to believe a lie than it is to to accept the truth. Do you think there's some element of that in Russian people's acknowledgement or understanding of, of what we're seeing today? And will that change? What changes that, whether it's Putin's behavior 
or what we see in this war? Well, since the February of uh, February 24th, the situation we found ourselves in was so, to, to put it mildly, uncomfortable, unbearable, that I can understand the temptation to accept any version, however primitive, any version mm -hmm. that would offer you a vestige of comfort, any picture, uh, even taken from state TV, that will still make you believe that you are a good person living in a good place, that you are comparatively safe, that the world has not broken into pieces. I can perfectly understand the temptation. I feel it myself. So, uh, especially in, in recent weeks and days, I have been judging much more mildly those people who support the, the official version uh, of events, because truth is hardly uh, bearable. The catastrophe is too palpable to, at the same time, it's palpable and it's impossible to look it fully uh, in the face. I'm a scholar. It's my duty to study political reality, and I find it hard to even read the news and to say nothing of analyzing them. Uh, so, again, when you hear and see people who say it's a special military operation, it's for our own good, and we had no other choice, we're fighting the Nazis, etc., keep in mind that possibly in their hearts there's this daily, hourly fear and anxiety and horror and general impossibility to adapt to this reality. It's like nothing we have experienced before. It's not like 2014, it's not like 2008. It's a whole new uh, reality and it's extremely hard to come to terms with. Time must, well, we do hope time will do something at adapting. We human creatures tend to adapt to almost anything that happens. Uh, but now we are in what we may call an acute, an acute phase uh, of, of what is happening. No signs of hostilities abating, no light in the end of any tunnel uh, that you can possibly look into. I guess the question is when does that perhaps turn inward and turn on Putin? But Ekaterina, I'm out of time. Please come back on the show. We had some technical issues in the beginning or I would have had more time with you, but I look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you for your time and, you. Um, and your wisdom. Ekaterina Schulman, fellow at the Robert Bosch Academy. Welcome back. Lots of April showers for global investors and not a lot of Mayflowers just yet. U.S. stocks beginning the new trading month. Little changed after the worst monthly drop for tech stocks since 2008. Weakness in Europe, too. All this ahead of an extremely busy few days for investors, including a Fed rate decision on Wednesday and fresh U.S. jobs numbers on Friday. Let me give, just give you a sense for the year. The S&P and the Nasdaq have fallen well over 10%. The Nasdaq, far and away the worst performer, now down more than 20%. The once mighty Fang tech stocks well and truly defanged this year once again too. Take a look at Netflix, down almost 70% since January. Regulatory risk, just one reason for tech's underperformance. The EU today taking aim at Apple, warning that the company, or warning the company that it's unfairly blocking competitors from using the technology behind Apple Pay. We've heard that warning before. And blunt talk from Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway CEO Warren Buffett criticizing Wall Street during his annual shareholder meeting over the weekend, saying larger American companies have become, quote, poker chips for market speculation. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, just one of fascinating comments that came out of this meeting actually and always does and, and Robin Hood 
also the trading app not spared the criticism. And obviously that share price has had a shocker this year as well. That's exactly right. Well, first off, just on the whole gambling parlor, as he called it, mentality on Wall Street. He has said things like this before, but he said the Mm. last couple of years, Julia, it's been even worse, where you have people who are essentially speculators encouraged to make money by speculation, not necessarily investment. And we know he's a big investment guy, right? And he says, ironically, that is what creates value for him, because then they can step back and they can look and see what Wall Street has beaten down and they can find value. And and indeed, they did in the first quarter of the year, somewhat $41 billion worth of purchases. But a warning again from the Oracle of Omaha about the speculative nature of Wall Street. Julia. One of the quotes that came out of this as well. Sometimes markets do crazy things. That's good for Berkshire, not because we're smart, but because we are sane. Yes, I like that point. But you know what what also caught my attention? Stupid and evil. What are we talking about, Christine Raymonds? talking about cryptocurrencies here. And uh, Charlie Munger and uh, Warren Buffett are not fans of crypto. Just the opposite. You know, Warren Buffett actually saying, look, I can value Priceland. or farmland, rather. I know how to price an apartment building. He said, I wouldn't give $25 for all of the crypto, all the Bitcoin in the world. And then Charlie Munger was even more uh, dire. And he has been very, very sharp about crypto before. He called it stupid and evil. And he said, the one thing he doesn't want to be is more foolish than everybody else in the room. If you buy crypto, you are that person. You are both. It is stupid, evil, and you are the fool. So they're really uh, talking about how this is not something that stores value. It's not something that you can that you can rate what kind of value it holds the way you can rate other commodities or stocks or other uh, instruments. And they're very, very, very out there about their aversion to it. I will say, though, the crypto bros are not going to care. They're going to say these guys (laughs) are investment dinosaurs, honestly. Right. And they just don't get it. Uh, Warren Buffett says, I don't get the value. Uh, This is not something I'm 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 engaged in. Yeah. I mean, that 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 comment was really quite strange to me. I understand what he said. Farmland has a rental yield. It produces food, apartments. You can get rent from the apartments. I wouldn't buy the whole of the Bitcoin market for $25. I would. And then I'd sell it at current market prices and make an absolute killing. Something strange about that comment. <laughs> Christine Robbins, thank you for that. I'll put in thirteen fifty. We can split it together, right? We'll each, we'll it's each a that. deal, my friend. <laughs> thank you. We leave you with a powerful moment from New York's Metropolitan Opera over the weekend. That's Ukrainian soprano Lyudmyla Monostyeka, who performed the title role of Turandot, then took her curtain call draped in the Ukrainian flag. And that's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the World is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.